0: Good afternoon. Welcome to Hudson Institute. Thank you for coming. We have a, uh, a very interesting uh, and timely panel in both ways. We're marking both the 10th anniversary of the, uh, of the July war, 2006, the second <coughs> Lebanon war, um, which lasted 34 days, I believe I'm correct. Uh, and also, we're talking about the, um, the regional situation and what the prospect of future conflict between Israel and Hezbollah looks like. And and on our panel this afternoon um, is uh, Mr. Ruben Azar. Ruben is the uh, deputy head of mission at the uh, Embassy of Israel in the United States. To his right is Tony Badran, a research fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, and on his right is uh, Michael Duran, a senior fellow here at Hudson Institute, a colleague of mine. I am also a senior fellow at Hudson. Um, and I couldn't uh, be more thrilled than to have this panel. I'm, I look forward to learning a lot. I, I speak with, uh, with all three of these gentlemen very often to learn different things about the region and, uh, and developments throughout the Middle East. And I'm sure that you also will be uh, – you will profit – from hearing the three of them speak, and I'm going to speak as little as possible and engage them, get them going as much as possible. Ruven, if you would, uh, if you would kindly begin. Uh, well, thank you, thank you very much, uh,
1: Lee, for this uh, opportunity. I uh, uh, thank my colleagues for uh, being with us. I um, the first thing that comes to my mind when the, when we speak about uh, uh, the Lebanon war is how much our region has changed since then. Uh, the, the strategic context uh, is is absolutely different and we are in a situation right now which uh, uh, Hezbollah was perceived 10 years ago as a champion the champion of the Arab cause now it's perceived completely different um, and we are we are, have a civil war going on in uh, in Lebanon um, uh, the Shia Sunni relations uh, have have changed dramatically so so geostrategically this is a different world. It's like a different planet. Uh, now, the implications for Israel are that uh, Israel has become sort of, uh, I don't want to sound too braggish, but a sort of an uh, in, indispensable partner in facing the, the challenges. Because not only that our interests converge with many of the Sunni countries, but also when it comes to the aspect of counterterrorism, we are today in a situation we have uh, a quite, you know, amassed quite uh, an amount of cooperation with our neighbors, with Jordan, with Egypt, and even now Turkey uh, is, uh, is uh, getting, you know, got to the conclusion it wants to amend their relations with us, and I think that the main reason is counterterrorism. So, uh, in that context, the, the, the things have changed, and I think in the Israel perspective, for the better when it comes to confronting Hezbollah. On the other hand, when it comes to the military balance, uh, I think that uh, what we are facing now is much worse than w- what we faced in 2006 and, and six, in terms of what the capabilities of Hezbollah, <laughs> uh, the numbers of rockets they have, about 100,000, the precision of the rockets that can hit uh, any target in Israel, the fact that they have uh, more, uh, more uh, advanced weapons, anti-aerial systems and uh, other kinds of uh, missiles, including uh, naval and others. Uh, and above all, the fact that they have uh, changed their nature from a, a force that was uh, concentrated mainly in defense to a force that now is very uh, experienced in offensive uh, operations as a result of their of their involvement in Syria. So you may say on the one hand that they are a bit overstretched. Um, but on the other hand, they have, they have gained experience that is going to be uh, that may be used and I think is going to be used in a, in a possible future confrontation with Israel. Now, when it comes to the consequences of that and the prospects of a future confrontation, I think that uh, as a result of the, of the change in the nature of the threat, the magnitude of the response uh, will be accordingly. So the, 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 the bottom line is that in order to address the threat, Uh, Israel has developed some capabilities in terms of missile defense, in offensive, uh, offensive capabilities. But uh, the challenge is going to be bigger, and Israel will have to use in such a situation of a uh, full-fledged operation much more force, and the the consequences for Lebanon would be much more, uh, much more devastating. Um, Just one word about uh, the political. Uh, seen in Lebanon, as we see it, we see that Lebanon has become more powerful within the Lebanese system. So we have basically what we are facing is sort of a Hezbollah stand and not a Lebanese country. When you when you look at the at the, at uh, how the system is paralyzed there, um, even when you when we look at things that are more constructive, like trying to solve the gas the gas issue, the the border issue. The Lebanese system is not very functional, and although we would be willing to sort of settle this thing and try to you know, uh, make it work not only for us, but also for them, I don't see much of a prospect, uh, and I would be surprised if, if now these uh, new moves by Nabi Barry are going to uh, to energize the energy market, are going to end up uh, with, uh, with a resolution of the subject. So uh, we are not in the business of trying to... Uh, provoke a new round. Um, we are concentrating uh, in this area of, of uh, turmoil in trying to stabilize our border, to defend ourselves. Uh, we have some red lines when it comes to our you know things that are happening in Syria. Um, but everybody understands right now that Israel is a force for stability,
0: and we want to stay that way. Uh, Reven, thanks very much. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you put it. Uh, in that context the way you started off because one of the things that I do want to um, emphasize here and one of the reasons for this uh, for this panel is to um, remind people of the different issues to remind people of the different issues especially regarding the uh, Iranian access in the region and this is one way to look at it in terms of the way that the strategic alignment has changed insofar as the Sunni powers are much more aligned with Israel. There is still an Iranian access, and they have also become uh, expanded their reach. The other thing I wanted to say is I think that's probably the first time that the name Nabi Beri has been mentioned at the new Hudson uh, office, so congratulations <laughs> well, to well. thank you.
2: That was great. That was terrific. Um, Tony, if you would like to uh, follow up. Yeah, th- thank you, Lee. Thanks for putting the panel together, for having me on. Um, y- yes, I, I would... So we're starting at 2006, and we're looking uh, ten years later. Um, but let's let's go in reverse a little bit also. Let's go back to 1996, so ten years before 2006, and look at these ten-year intervals, and see what happens in the this recurring conflict between Israel and Hezbollah. So in 1996, where was Iran and where was Hezbollah? Not very much on anybody's radar as a significant factor. In 2006, we wake up and we find out, oh, so all of a sudden, Iran and Iranian rockets are now on Israel's border. And it's much more potent than anything we saw in 1996. Fast forward to 2016, and we talk about um, the deterrence that came about from the 2006 war. But at the same time, uh, there's another question. Is Okay, there's been a deterrence, although whether the deterrence has been entirely the result of the 2006 war or as a result of the entanglement of Hezbollah in Syria, we can't really say. Uh, But let's assume that it is the result of the 2006 war. At the same time... The Hezbollah that emerges in 2016 in terms of its capabilities and the position of Iran in the region in 2016 at the end of that 10-year interval is something that is not even comparable to what it, it was in 2006. So in that sense, both in terms of the security challenge but also as to, in terms of the strategic environment, uh, as a result obviously of how uh, U.S. policy has has shaped that outcome – uh, it's not necessarily uh, or purely a positive picture. In fact, if anything, one can make a case that it's actually progressively worse or could have the potential of being progressively worse. So one of the things now that you're looking at in terms of prospects for a new war is obviously the Syria thing. So everything is revolving around Syria, because that will determine both the strategic, the security challenge, the, the, the magnitude of the security challenge, as well as the strategic environment, because if Hezbollah um, is continues to be entangled in Syria and continues to hemorrhage manpower um, and just basically not being able to, to open up more fronts, uh, then as far as Israel is concerned, the period of calm will continue. Uh, how much Hezbollah can bring in in terms of capabilities throughout that period will also be relevant to, uh, whether that period of calm will be lengthened or will be shortened, proportionate to the amount of weaponry that they that they manage to bring in. But if Syria stabilizes, say in the next whatever ten years, again let's let's look at it in two thousand twenty six. Right, um, the way the uh, this current uh, last eight years policy towards Syria and towards Iran have shaped it in such a in such a fashion that uh, now Iran is part of the conversation in Syria. Iran has been admitted as a quote unquote stakeholder. Iran now essentially owns the ground in Syria. What used to be the Assad regime no longer exists now it's just a panoply of militias all of which are run by Iran. Yes, everything is uh, under the cover of the Russian Air Force, but the Russian Air Force don't own the ground. The Iranians own the ground. So whatever order comes out now in Syria, whichever way it's, sta- it's stabilized, if it's stabilized on the terms that the last you know, uh, five years of U.S. policy have, have, uh, have, have had it, it's going to be a Syria that's stabilized whereby, Iran, whereby Iran's interests are safeguarded. Um, I mean, the president of the United States came out and says so. I mean, recognize Iranian equities in Syria is a a must. With the Russians there now, that kind of, it's become now part of the conversation that somehow we have to work with the Russians in Syria if you want a solution. That means already we've de facto accepted the permanency of of, uh, the Iranian enterprise in Syria. Now, once Syria, the Syrian war settles down, then the challenge will emerge. And then the clock starts ticking again in terms of um, uh, the inevitability of a conflict. But as with 1996 to 2006 and 2006 to 2016, 2016 to 2026 risks seeing a Hezbollah that's infinitely more capable in terms of its its, uh, weapons systems, but also an Iran that's unleashed, that's probably by that point a threshold nuclear state, uh, with an industrial scale, legalized industrial scale uh, program, and recognized uh, regional primacy in Iraq and in Syria, so that long-term picture uh, carries carries challenges. In as in as much as the current situation now uh, carries opportunities that Ruven talked about in terms of the cooperation with the Sunni Arab states, in terms of uh, uh, the the Sunni Shia polarization, which will carry long-term repercussions for Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, because now the tiny, I mean, people talk about how big Hezbollah is or how big the Shia community is in Lebanon, but the fact of the matter is they have two neighbors only. They have Syria and they have Israel, and they have made war and run blood debts with both of them. Uh, And both of them are either the Syrians who are numerically superior or the Israelis who are superior in every other uh, 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 way, but also as a fighting force, far more superior and numerous. Um, This carries, I think, dire consequences long term, for uh, not just for Lebanon as a whole, but specifically uh, specifically for the Shia of Lebanon. So. That's, yeah, thanks, Tony, and thanks for ending on
0: that particular point, because I don't know if we'll have um, – that is something I'd like to come back to at a certain point, what the, um, what the conflict will, and what the Syrian conflict will mean for the Shia community in Lebanon. We can touch on that a little bit. There's two other issues that you raised. I think lots of the times we talk about, um, and I think it's accurate, to say what will the co- potential conflict between Israel and Hezbollah look like once the Syrian civil war has settled down. But there's also a possibility, and this is something I think that – there's also a possibility that the Syrian uh, conflict will touch something off, and, and that's, a, that's a concern as well, that this war will not be, will not be avoided. Um, the other thing that you touched on, which I definitely want to come back to, is, Raven, when you were talking about how much the ground has changed in the last 10 years, one of the really big ways that things have changed is uh, Russia's escalation in Syria and how that will affect um, both Hezbollah's actions and Israel's actions um, now and in the event of a conflict. Um, so thanks again, Tony. Um, Mike, if you would uh,
3: – if you would uh, proceed. Thanks. Well, thanks. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I'll start by just saying um, a couple words about uh, the, the war in 2006, because uh, I was in the uh, I was in the White House at the time, working on this uh, working on this issue, um, and uh, a, a number of things are striking to me uh, looking back 10 years later. Um, one was that we in the Bush administration at the time, uh, I think that there were two. Um, Rival strategic concepts that were um, alive in the uh, administration at the time. Uh, one concept saw the role of the United States in the Middle East as uh, uh, to uh, contain Iran, and saw the Iranian alliance system—Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, Hamas—as um, the, um, the and then the Shiite militias that it was building in, the, uh, in Iraq um, as the as a primary strategic threat. Uh, and when the war broke out, uh, uh, people who saw it that way, and I was among those people, um, regarded it as um, as a proxy war, basically between the United States and Iran, uh, and saw uh, and and saw Israel's fight with Hezbollah as an opportunity um, to strip Iran of one of its uh, or weaken one of Iran's major assets in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, the other concept uh, that was floating around in the administration um, saw Iran um, a, as a, a pote- potential partner uh, in the conflict with uh, Sunni radicalism, right? Because this is obviously post 9/11. This new issue of Al Qaeda was on the uh, was on the radar. Um, uh, neither of these concepts was, uh, you know, uh, gelled uh, particularly, but. I would say, for a moment there during the war, I think I think that the 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 idea that we needed to counter Iran was really the dominant feeling in the uh, in the administration, um, and as a result, the the Bush administration gave Israel pretty much a blank check, uh, which uh, uh, is probably, if not unique, it's pretty rare in the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict that 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 Israel was just given a blank check to go take care of business. Um, I don't think the Israelis used that. Um, uh, use that opportunity to, to maximum advantage. I think that they would, all the people who were involved in it would agree with that. It's um, so unfortunate, looking back on it. Uh, but one of the results, I don't know if it's a result, but one of, the, uh, one of the developments in the aftermath of the war, from the American point of view, is that the concept that it's the job of the United States to counter Iran throughout the region, that st- strategic concept got weaker and weaker. Um, uh, as time went on, even in the Bush, even in the the, the Bush administration, I would say that uh, as I understood President Bush's thinking, I think that was always on his mind. Um, but there were a lot of other ideas that were floating uh, that were uh, that were floating around. Um, somebody here mentioned—I uh, can't remember who it was—that. Uh, that we now have this alignment in the region between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and that was and this is something new, and that didn't exist at the time. Or they suggested that that didn't exist in two thousand six. Actually, I think when you go back and look at it, you see that was the beginning. Uh, uh, one of the things that was really striking to us in the White House uh, was the extent to which the Saudis did not complain uh, about Israeli uh, the, the Israeli uh, attacks against Hezbollah. Um, that there was a there was a there was a if i recall correctly there was a there was an arab league uh there was an arab league statement uh that came out uh, in which they blamed Hezbollah for the war that was very shocking uh and uh, we got lots of reports of uh, saudis um uh indicating to the europeans who were very who were more eager i think than anybody on the on the scene to sort of move in to try to stop the war immediately um the the, the saudis um i don't know if they had a restraining uh, hand with the with the with the Europeans, but they were not sending that signal to the Europeans like you might have uh, like you might have expected. So I think you could see. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think you could see the seeds right then already that the, the Saudis were reading the, the 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 rise of Iran as the um, as the uh, as the problem. Uh, I myself personally have never stopped considering Iran to be the number one strategic challenge of the United States in the Middle East, uh, and, and I I think that the focus on ISIS as the top priority uh, and the attempt to, as I understand the, what the Obama administration is doing, which is trying to cobble together um, a loose coalition to fight ISIS, which which does include now the Russians and the Iranians, uh, is, um, uh, is a mistake, because I think the big winner there is going to be Iran, and I think that the um uh, that the reckoning is going to come the reckoning between the United States and Iran and and uh, and Israel and Iran I don't want to be too um I don't want to be too uh you know uh, too dire about this um or, or or apocalyptic uh but the potential for uh the potential for a a, a real explosion um is uh is for for a, for a for a a large-scale explosion. The potential is very real, and I think we don't have to wait ten years uh, to see it. I'm I'm concerned in the coming years, uh, uh, in the coming year even. Uh, I mean, the Obama administration is now working to coordinate with the Russians and the and and therefore with the Iranians, because as Tony mentioned, the Iranians are providing the ground forces for the Russian, for the Russians in uh, in Syria. Um, we are, now, we are now coordinating with them. The Russians and the Iranians are focused now, and Hezbollah are focused on, sewing up the north of Syria. They're, they're likely going to succeed in that venture. And then they're going to turn southward. Uh, you know, as, as Tony suggested, that's, that could be a project that takes years. It could be a project that will that, materialize within the next year. Um, or so. And as they turn southward and they begin to reimpose and they begin to, to, to put Iranian forces on the ground in the south, what is the what is the Israeli reaction going to be? I mean, Israel has three famous red lines about Syria. Uh, no IRGC forces on Israel's uh, border, no cross-border raids against, uh, uh, in, into Israel, and no transfer of strategic weaponry from Syria to, uh, uh, to Hezbollah. And they have been telling uh, they have been telling the Russians that they are going to impose, that they're going to enforce these red lines, even if the the, the Syrians and Hezbollah are operating under a a, a Russian security umbrella. Um, uh, are they going to actually continue to act in that manner as the as these forces move south? Uh, what will be the result? How will the, how will the Russians respond? How will the Iranians respond? Uh, the, uh, again, I don't want to be too dire about it, but, they, but the potential for friction there is enormous. And some of the answers that we're hearing in Washington as to why we don't have to worry about this are bunk uh, for instance, we're hearing that there's tremendous tension between the Russians and the Iranians. The Russians and the Iranians don't have the same interests. They're going to go different ways and so on. We can talk more about this uh, la- later, but this is uh, – I-, I don't read the picture this way at all. Uh, and all the claims of that, that the Iranians and the Russians are, 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 are going to move apart – Uh, have not – all the predictions that this is going to happen have not materialized so far, and I don't see any reason to see it uh, uh, – to see it in the future. So I'm actually really uh, quite worried about that, because we have a strengthened Iran, uh, a strengthened Hezbollah, uh, uh, an America that is no longer as supportive of Israel against the Iranian uh, alliance system. uh uh, as it was and a tremendously fluid environment so it's a it's a recipe uh it's a recipe for a for a a very very bad development mike that was great and you led right into uh you led we might
0: as well ask i was going to hold off but uh you were talking about it saying how does that change uh, how does that change the ground for israel if iran starts moving south and if it's under russian air cover i'm going to put you on the spot we'll all put you on the spot how does it change things well, we've been uh, actually not only putting our red lines, but
1: uh, meeting, uh, trying to meet uh, those lines, and act- taking action. Right. So some of the action we prefer not to not to sort of going around announcing it. Some of the action, I think, uh, some of our leaders have been recognizing that uh, we are active. Right. Um, so so far, uh, you see that uh, despite the efforts of Hezbollah and different Iranian uh, elements to uh, create a presence in the border with Syria, that was sort of uh, confronted. Uh, It doesn't mean that in the future it it cannot change. We have a dialogue with uh, Russia. We understand that Russia is a power broker in Syria, and uh, we are investing uh, time and effort to try to create an understanding. And I think the Russians, at this point, uh, respect our concerns when it comes to uh, defending ourselves but you know it can change so I agree that the situation is pretty volatile in that respect um, and uh, you can reach uh, stability and sustainability if you stick if you show that you're ready to stick uh, with your with your policy and I think until now Israel has showed that uh, that resolution uh, of course that in a in a situation in which the political landscape changes as a result of an agreement uh, that will uh, stabilize things in Syria, then we'll have to sort of, sort of form an attitude of how we are going to react to that. Uh, we were very clear uh, that we are not going to intervene in the internal situation in Syria. Um, and our policy is going to be driven only by how we see the best way to defend ourselves. So, um, yes, there is a big question about uh, Iran in the larger context. And about Iran and Syria, and um, and you may see a situation which in which uh, there is a settlement in which Iran takes part. Now, Iran was pre- present in Syria before the war, uh, so the expectation that uh, you know they would uh, vanish into thin air someday, you know, I don't think that we are in that
0: business. But we are going to be focused in trying to see that our interests are met. One of you just mentioned that um, that Israel is not. Involving itself in the in the war, which which totally makes sense. But one of the things that Tony has spoken about uh, has spoken about uh, very well and very clearly is when different people have said, well, for instance, different candidates here uh, running for president have said, well, the Israelis have no dog in the fight in Syria; they're not doing anything. And as Tony has pointed out, it's like, well, no, actually, if you look at what's happening on the ground. Where the Israelis attacking, they're going after the Iranian access. They're going after Israeli weapons. They're going after Iranian weapons heading to Hezbollah. Um, so yeah, Tony, if you would, um, if you would just give a little more detail to what you've spoken about in terms of that, and in terms of like, what do you mean about what do you mean about the Iranians moving south? Why would that happen? Why
2: wh- wh- why would that happen? And uh, what does that mean? Right. Um, the the problem, as I saw, I mean, it's very understandable from Israel's perspective that you don't want to intervene intervene in the in the in the Syrian, uh, and it was supposed to be the job of the United States to be uh, the uh, the power that shaped that outcome in a matter that's uh, more um, that's advantageous to all of its allies, Israel, Jordan, and Turkey, in this case, right. Um, what we have been seeing, and this is something that I don't know if uh, you know if, if it's if it' gotten that much uh, recognition, is that what we've been seeing in effect in terms of where Israel is in Syria and where the United States is they're actually on opposing sides because I see it the, and and now this new agreement with Russia is going to I think consolidate that in my reading of it. why? because the whole thing that we're agreeing with with the Russians, is that we're going to go after certain Islamic groups, Nusra Front specifically and ISIS, but potentially others. Uh, And and we are going to help them destroy these groups, and therefore we are going to be actively an air force in support of Bashar al-Assad. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Now, Mike put it exactly right. The priority of this is going to be in the north, in order to take Aleppo and to completely shut out Turkey from 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 the Syrian uh, um, theater. But what if all of a sudden the Iranians, under this American agreement, say, okay, but there are Nusra guys in Dar'a and there are Nusra guys in Kunetra, and let's go fight terrorism, and and if the United States now, I don't know. The Obama administration has limited time, so I don't know if that's going to happen, and we don't know what the next administration is going to do. Uh, so that may not materialize, but it, it, may, it may indeed materialize. And that's why uh, Ruven was right. I mean, the, 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 we all saw the strike in January 2015 in Kunaitra, That was the most forceful display that, no, the Iranians are not going to be allowed to come here. The Jordanians, which is a lesser um, uh, recognized uh, angle, did the same thing. In the town uh, in 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 March of 2000, not too long after that, in March of 2015, there was uh, the town of Busra sham which was right across the border from the Jordanian uh, border, from uh, the Jordanian cities, uh, and that used to be a major IRGC and Hezbollah uh, town headquarters, and they backed up Syrian rebels to kick them out, right? Now, what happens if these guys come back now under Russian cover? to the south, and so on. It puts tremendous strain, but we don't see the Iranians as a problem in this context. We see ISIS and Nusra as the problem. And everybody's talking now about but the new ISIS affiliates in the Golan, you know, this uh, uh, Yarmouk brigades, and so on and so forth. And Brett McGurk showed up and with the goggles, and, oh, we're going to go after you, and so on and so forth. Right? That's all nice, but who takes their place? There is no Assad regime, right? And Putin, if Putin says, "Yeah, don't worry, I'll take care of it," you take care of nothing. The grounds. I, I just want to make sure
0: yeah. that this is clear. What you're saying, uh, what do you mean? Who takes their place?
2: Who, when you take out, Nusra and ISIS or whatever you want to call these groups in 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 the in the Golan and Dara. Okay, you've kicked them out. Who replaces them? who are the forces I mean, on the golan who are the people yes, who, will, who, who will fills be, the vacuum who, who fills the vacuum that emerges from that who is it uh, if it's if you're talking about the regime camp the camp that's going to have russian and potentially american air support it's the iranians it's as simple as that right unless there's an agreement whereby the uh, you, you create buffer zones and, and, and basically are manned by uh, Syrian rebel factions that you're comfortable with or whatever. Because otherwise, otherwise, there, it's just a matter of arithmetic, right? The Assad regime does not have manpower. The Assad regime's military now is a bunch of militias, and a lot of them are Iranian-trained and funded. Uh, so the notion that somehow you're going to have uh, return to the status quo ante on the Golan. It's not going to happen. There is no more Assad regime in the sense of the way we talked about it in the 1990s, and oh, the 40 years of quiet with Israel on the Golan. I mean, that's just yeah, yeah. I think this great. is a very important point that gets lost all the time.
0: Who is going to be there if there is no more? If there are no more Assad forces, in the same way who's going to be on that border or who's fighting on the ground right now?
2: That's it. It's, it's a question that nobody, and that's why the idea, the, what Mike talked about, you know, the priority of ISIS and so on, I think you can read it in a much more you know, pernicious way, actually, in the sense that it becomes cover for an elevation of the Iranians into a, a counterterrorism partner, which is effectively what we, what we have in Iraq and may even have in, in, in Syria. And we, I mean, we certainly have it in Lebanon, right? I mean, the, this is one of the things, uh, the, in, the, the interesting things about the the idea that somehow Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda uh, are fighting each other in Syria, and therefore that's a good thing. Let, let Allah sort them out, uh, as um, the infamous uh, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah Palin line had it, right? Which, by the way, is a very widely held view outside of Sarah Palin circles, right? Who said that, in fact? It was Dennis McDonough who said that. To the New York Times, he said, it's a good thing Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah are fighting each other. Curiously enough, we did not let Al-Qaeda fight Hezbollah in Lebanon, for instance. When there was a, a backlash from Hezbollah's entry into the Syrian war in 2013, and bombs were blowing off in Beirut, the United States gave intelligence to the Lebanese armed forces and security forces to help Hezbollah put put a lid on the idea of, of a Sunni jihadi backlash against them. So the notion that somehow we're either letting them kill each other is not true. We're actually elevating them to a, to a position of preference, if not partnership, in, in, as it is in Iraq. There are partners in Iraq. In, in Lebanon, okay, Hezbollah is a terrorist organization. You can't quite partner with Hezbollah, but at least... You you calm things down for them. And I think that this anti-ISIS campaign moving in this direction, if it moves to the southern part of Syria and the Golan Heights and Daraa, it could potentially carry the scenario that Mike talked about. Well, what what is Israel? Israel has either has to face a fait accompli and just accept it or not.
0: Did did, did you want to respond? I just wanted to make something, but please go ahead. Yeah, very briefly. Look, I think that first
1: of all, I don't think that uh, Israel and the United States are opponents when it comes to Syria. You can just judge it by the level of cooperation we have with the United States uh, on the on the on the Syrian issue. Of course, that we have more immediate concerns, and those concerns sometimes are. Nuancely different from the American ones. But uh, it's not that uh, you know we have the... There are two levels here of conversation that some, sometimes don't meet, and, and you have to realize that. There, there are the immediate concerns of our defense, and there is how you solve the Syria issue. So we are not in fantasizing that uh, somehow uh, these guys, uh, bad guys from both sides, whether it be the Assad regime, or the Iranians, or Shuhdari or where all of them are going to be removed, and you are going to have, I don't know, the Zionist movement, you know, controlling the... The other side we, we, we are not we don't I'm have sure, eh? yeah. <laughs> war <We're not laughs> fantasizing that suddenly you're going to have there but what we are doing is yes we are investing in a relationship with uh, villagers there so by assisting by by su- uh, supplying uh, humanitarian assistance we've been treating thousands and thousands of uh, Syrian villagers in our hospitals and uh, uh, so we are creating a vested interest within the population uh, that sits immediately adjacent to the border, uh, that they would have, that they wouldn't have an interest to cooperate uh, with the guys that want to attack us. So how they are going to settle up the situation between them and, and the Assad regime? Okay, that's that's a, that's a fair question. But the fact that the United States has a position regarding that doesn't make them opponent of Israel. On the contrary, we are cooperating all the time on meaning. Uh, on trying to give answers uh, to mutual threats
0: that emanate from both sides of the equation. Um, Mike, I wanted to ask you. Uh, <clears throat> I want to ask you about something that um, that instead of actually uh, projecting what a future conflict would look like, at this stage, what role does the next administration does does a White House have in sh- in shaping how that conflict looks like, yeah. um, to what extent has have certain um, positions that have been taken now? How does that affect what will happen in the
3: future for for the next for a future White House? Well, uh, let me start and say, imagine it's a Clinton administration. So, uh, if you've been listening carefully, you hear that Leon Panetta, who's clearly in the in the Clinton camp. Uh, came out. I well, think it was an interview last week, and said you have to fight ISIS and Iran simultaneously. Right? You can't. Uh, so he's uh, he isn't. He clearly has the same picture in his head that Tony has, and, and uh, he's not expressing it so um, so sharply. Uh, and, and he's talking about what we need to do rather than 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 what's wrong with what we're doing. Um, but he clearly sees that the. The partnership with Russia is a de facto partnership with Iran, uh, and and w- one of the ways that we get away w- with uh, coop we are we are we are in effect cooperating with Iran and Hezbollah, but we get away with the, we we get away with it by making deals with Russia and pretending that we don't understand what what that's going to mean with respect to, to to Russia and Iran. Leon Panetta and I think the Hillary Clinton team. Recognize that this is a problem, and they're talking. Her team is talking about uh, about pushing back more aggressively against Iran in in Syria. I, I'm concerned, however, that they haven't thought this all through, uh, and 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 they haven't thought it through in, in this sense that the game board over the last five years has changed uh, um, drastically. We're not just we're not just aligned with Iran in Syria. We're aligned with Iran in Iraq. Uh, you know, when 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 the Iraqi forces, which which include the uh, the popular mobilization forces, the, the Shiite militias, armed, trained, equipped, and basically led by Iran, recently took Fallujah. They did so with the air power of, of of the United States. And as as we move as we move up the Euphrates and take the next town and the next town and the next town up to Al Qaim on the border. Uh, it's going to be the same. It's going to be the same story. U.S. air power married to uh, married to uh, Iranian forces on the uh, on the ground. Of course, again, we don't coordinate with Iran. We coordinate with the Iraqi military, who coordinates with Iran. It's always one step removed. But that's the that's what we're doing in Iraq. Um, and and, uh, and so what you're going to find is that if you change the equation in Syria, you're going to change the equation in Iraq, and maybe with the nuclear deal as well. So, uh, try to, a recalibration of uh, 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 a recalibration in Syria already means not just a recalibration with Iran; it also means a recalibration with Russia right so suddenly're we're, we're, we're in a conflictual relationship with Iran and Russia and Syria that's going to have implications for Iraq because the Iranians are not just going to take it in Syria they're going to, they're gonna make us pay a price in Iraq and they may make us pay a price on the Iran nuclear deal as well they could suddenly uh, find that uh, you know that, uh, that, that that the inspections regime in their mind is uh, has gone it, 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 we're, we're demanding uh, more than uh, than is, is acceptable and so you are saying that the you think that um... the knee bones connected to the thigh bone. Okay. Okay, right?
0: No, oh, absolutely. That they're not—they haven't really recognized yet what has happened, what's shifted. They—they have not. They have
3: not recognized it. and They think that we can open up the trap door in this area and we can move the dial two notches and everything else will remain the same. It won't. It won't. There's a you—you are—you are, you are either—you are either in a—you uh, are either in um, an adversarial relationship with Iran and Russia. Or you're not, and if you are in an adversarial relationship with Iran and Russia, it's it's an adversarial relationship across the across but the. But you know what the argument will be, right? If that's not already the argument, the argument is well,
0: we have problems, we have conflict here, but certainly there's different places where we can work things out with them, right? There's different. We have a shared interest here actually, and that's. What's going on now, right? Which you said before. We have a shared interest in fighting Sunni jihadis. We have a shared interest in fighting ISIS. So we'll get this and that and, there. And 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 this is
3: delusional. Okay. Why? Uh, it's delusional. Why? Because yes, Lavrov is quite happy to sit with John Kerry and say yes, yes, we share concern with we, we share a concern with uh, on on terrorism. But how do they, how do the Russians define terrorism? They define terrorism to, to include all of, the, all of the Syrian opposition forces that we've been arming and training, and, 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 and not Hezbollah. Not, and Hezbollah is not a, a terrorist organization. So they, they, have, they have understood quite clearly that our notion of working together against ISIS works tremendously to their advantage right and under our air cover they're rising to power in iraq and, and, and in syria so they'll they'll sit down with us at the table and smile and agree with us in principle on these issues so long as they get to pocket all of these all of these advantages what is what what advantages has the has the the introduction of massive russian and iranian force into syria brought to the united states uh, i would say none uh, uh, and and when you look at the refugee crisis into Europe, we haven't even mentioned that at all, right? We 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 popularly associate this with ISIS, but the re- but the refugees pouring out of of Syria are are fleeing from the, for- the the Iranian and Russian bombing and Assad's bombing of his own of his own cities, right? So and that's caused tremendous that's that's put tremendous pressure on the on on NATO and on 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 the Europeans played a big role in Brexit. Right, which we which we don't think was in the to the strategic advantage of the United States. So if you're sitting in Moscow and you look at all of the trouble that this is causing the West and all the advantages that are coming to Russia and uh, and Iran, why why wouldn't you smile at the Americans and agree with them when they say these things? The um, by the way, Prime Minister Netanyahu, you can correct me if I'm wrong, has been to Moscow five times in the last uh, in the last year. Four, four times in the last year? Okay, four. I'm I miscounted Exaggerated, I thought. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so the, and that's that is not that's not that's not so, an idiosyncratic Israeli response, right? That everybody who has half a brain in the Middle East, and which means everybody who's a leading a country in the Middle East, they're, they're making a beeline to Moscow because they understand where the decisions are being made. Now
1: well there's no doubt that the russians are present in syria and this is uh, something we have to take into account if we want to continue our policies of defending ourselves so uh, the fact that uh, a turkish plane was gone down by uh, you know like sorry that uh, the russian plane was gone down by the turks uh, you know we don't want to be in the same situation i think that uh, uh, if you look carefully about how that started, it started by the fact that the Turks wanted to coordinate with the Russians, but the Russians refused. That was that's what they are saying. I don't know who's right, but you need a lot of goodwill in order to uh, deconflict situations. Uh, so we don't, we are not in the business of trying to uh, you know confront Russia militarily. So uh, uh, we have interests, and if we want our interests to be respected, uh, we need to. Uh, Negotiate with those who want to negotiate with us, so and they are present
0: on the ground. Russia is one of them. I'm going to put you in. I'm going to put you in a bad spot. Again. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Because um, I, I, I feel I'm, here's I'm going to set this up. Mike, do you think an ideal administration would actually like the Israelis to confront Russia <laughs> o-
3: over Syria? No, no. I th- look. I, I think that uh, uh, I think that if if Israel were to confront Russia today. The, the United States would respond exactly like it did or very similarly to the way it responded when the Turks uh, shot down the Russian airliner well, we, look the Russians are the Russians are probing harassing whatever you want to call challenging uh, challenging us all along the NATO frontier right in the Baltics they're crossing over they they, 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 they penetrated British airspace. Uh, and, and so on and so, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so one possible reaction when the Turks shot down the Russian airliner was to say, was to respond uh, as the leader of NATO, the leading a- nation in NATO, and respond in a way to strengthen all NATO powers against the, uh, uh, against the Russians. That's not what we did. We defined it as a bilateral problem. We 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 publicly immediately, I mean, the minute it happened, said, we hope you two boys. Uh, Erdoğan and Putin. We hope you can work out your differences, and we, we're, we're here to try to help you work out your differences. But, but the White House privately messaged against the Turks and said that it was a horrible provocation and it was a mistake. The result of that is we now have a we now have a Russian no fly zone, uh, you know, a zone of immunity for Russian forces in uh, uh, in 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 Syria, uh, right on the NATO frontier. Right? How does that, how's that benefit the NATO, uh, the, the NATO alliance? This makes no sense from a, from a, from a strategic point of view. If, if, NATO is a, if, if, main, if strengthening NATO is one of our, is one of our primary uh, strategic goals, and look at the contradiction, right? at the same time that we've got – we're talking about strengthening NATO against Russia with regard to Ukraine and the Baltics and so on, but yet, but yet somehow we make this distinction and say, but that doesn't apply to Syria. This is, a, this is strategically incoherence. In, in so I'd like to, to actually respond to something
1: you said earlier. I think that we have to be more nuanced and automatically putting the Russians, the Iranians, and Hezbollah on the, same, uh, on the same side or having similar interests, I think would be a bit irresponsible, because it's not very accurate. Uh, I think that the interests of Russia and Iran vary a bit. And although we are very worried from the fact that the Russians are supplying, for example, S-300 to Iranians, and uh, we, have, we haven't managed to stop that, um, I think that uh, this triangle of Russia, uh, or quite, say square, of Russia, uh, uh, Iran, uh, the Assad regime, and Hezbollah, vary. For example, in the beginning of the war, uh, Hezbollah and the Iranians needed the consent of Assad to do things in Syria. They don't need that anymore, and they are ready to take out anybody in the Assad regime that stands in their way. So the question is, what is the Russian interest in that context? That Does the Rus- Russian in- does the Ru- Do the Russians want to sort of reinforce the Assad regime to continue give them the umbrella of legitimacy to stay over there, or they would like to see a, a bigger Iranian role in Syria? I think the Russians don't want to see a bigger Iranian role in Syria, and this is something we have to look at, observe, um, because maybe the next administration, regardless whether it be a Republican or Democratic, will have to look at that and, and try to strike a balance um, of what they want to see uh, in a future a future uh, role in, Russian
0: role in Syria as opposed to an Iranian role in Syria. Mike, I want you to respond, but also I want Tony to give – so you guys rock, paper, scissors – but I want Tony to give his picture of what he thinks the Hezbollah, Iran, Russia, Assad uh, square looks like as
3: well. But please, go ahead. So um, I have um, t- uh, two major disagreements with you. Uh, one is a is a a principled disagreement, and that is that I don't do nuance.
2: Don't, yeah. so, so, uh, so,
3: so I'm just opposed in principle to your to your argument. And then, then more more. Thank you. Glad more, you, you said. Yeah, it. yeah. More 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 specifically, uh, uh, I think that the differences between the Russians and the Iranians that you mentioned are real but they are not strategically significant. Why? Because the Iranians, the Russians, and Hezbollah all share uh, two absolutely vital interests. One is uh, keeping the Assad regime in power. That is absolutely vital to them. And, and, uh, and it's, it's actually the same one, but I want to I put a, a, a corollary to that. The, the, the second point is, it's, when I say the Assad regime, i mean the alawite dominated security structure in syria is vital to both cuz neither the iranians the, it, it, syria is a base for iran to project its power into east, the eastern mediterranean and it's a base for the russians to project their power in, in, into the middle east and if the if the alawite dominated security structure goes they both lose that base right any 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 Sunni successor state of whatever complexion, right, is going to get rid of those guys, and and, and they know that. Um, so, uh, so because of that, the tensions that exist between them are as nothing because they're always going to work to to, to, to keep to, uh, uh, to keep Assad in power. And there's a, and there's one other thing, um, uh, uh, Rayovan, the. The Russians don't want to send in ground troops. They don't want bo- Russian body bags going back from this. So they're going to they're going to remain players from the air, and the guys who own the ground are the are, are, are the Iranians. So they're like Siamese twins in uh, in Siamese twins in in Syria who share the same organs, right? And they may hate each other. They may hate each other. They may want to fight with each other all the time. But but they know the Russians know that if they knock out the Iranians, they kill themselves, right? So ultimately, whatever tensions exist, and we may be able to exploit them in certain ways. Whatever tensions exist, they're going
2: to get over them in order to in order to look after their core interests. Tony, do you want to fill this in? Some? Well, I mean, I, I, you might covered the the essential point, right? It's it's basically first principles. The idea is that what is the hinge? both the, the, what what it revolves around a very simple thing, right? They need the Assad regime full stop. That's why every policy discussion that's been going on in in Washington about this issue, about Assad, what the Russians may want, what the, and not just not in Washington, with, with the Saudis had, had, had entertained the same delusion, the, were forced to rather, uh, the Europeans everybody, the idea, well, well would they agree to somebody no, 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 they need Assad period. And they are going to fight to keep Assad. And if Assad stays, Iranian interests in Syria, what the president uh, euphemistically called equities, will be preserved. And equities mean that Iran will be able to maintain its land bridge to, 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 to Lebanon. Now, you can say, look, as far as Israel is concerned, well, this was the kind of the reality that we had before the Syrian war. So if this continues, well, we're kind of, we didn't really move the dial all that much. Uh, to a certain extent, only now you know, you have the Golan in addition to that, and you have a, a, height, a heightened, um, a raised profile for the Iranians. But it doesn't matter, as far as the Iranians are concerned, if the Russians get a base out of it. Because if anything, well, okay, great. It just adds S-400s in, on the Syrian coast. Fantastic. It keeps the Turks out, destroys the Turkish uh, 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 proxies in, in, in Syria. Perfect. So, so what? The 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 fault line is not it it never it never breaks strategically, like Mike said. And this is and I'd like to give another uh, analogy about this that in terms of how this paradigm has dominated thinking, and it's relevant to the Lebanon and Hezbollah issue, because people used to have the same conversation about Assad and Iran in the past that they don't really agree on everything, that there actually there is a way to pry Syria away from Iran. In fact, Israeli and American policy for years was premised on this this notion. And it was always false. It was never right because these guys, and now the Syrian war showed why. Because the minute Assad was in danger, nobody else came to his support except Iran. That's it. He knew that. They knew that. So just as much as the Iranians and the Russians are Siamese twins, they understand, too, that without that, their entire enterprise on the eastern Mediterranean falls apart. So they need to have it, and, and, uh, and that's that. So I, I think this notion of, well, maybe we can balance. Yes, I can understand um, Israel or Turkey or Jordan being in that position. What are you going to do? you Are going to go to war against Russia? You're not, you're not in that position to do that. But as far as the United States is concerned, uh, the thinking has to be different. I mean, you cannot start by saying, okay, now that we've accepted Russia in uh, in Syria, I mean, well, let's see how we can... I mean, what Mike said it was a, a, a gag that he doesn't
0: do nuance. Right. I think in some ways a superpower... I'm saying it's actually a serious point because in some ways the role of a superpower is not to do so much nuance, right? Is so that like their alliance strategically like, like this, this is bad for us and bad for our allies. We're going to move like this, and let them figure this out, what their interests are. Um, I I, I, I want to – if you – but I I also want to come back to what Tony said about the land bridge, um, but if you want to say something else, but I want to come back to the land bridge thing too. Yeah, well, I I can talk about it. Look, I I think that uh, unless the
1: Iranians or Hezbollah try very hard to create a a new front against Israel in in the the, the Syrian part, uh, in front of the Golan, there's no way that Israel is going to get involved physically to try to prevent uh, taking from Iran this uh, land-rich mm-hmm. Mediterranean. Right. But if they try to do that, then that that it will that will be challenged because Israel will not agree uh, to another front being created uh, in front of itself. Yeah. So uh, regarding the rest, it, it it depends on the you know you cannot uh, get uh, something with nothing. You know whoever uh, is invested. Uh, is uh, having a stake. Now, I think that the nuances are, are important because, at the end of the day, uh, I think that uh, Russia understands pretty well our position. And, uh, and although it cannot completely prevent from the Iranians to positioning themselves uh, in front of uh, the Israeli border, I think it can influence, has an influence on that process. So I'm not, I'm not uh, claiming that you. That you can take Iran apart from the Assad regime. In order to do that, you would have to invest, you know, tremendous resources that nobody is willing to invest. So it's not realistic. So let's face it. The reality is that Alawistan, okay, which is the sort of the Alawite, what is left of Syria, right now it seems that it's going to remain it because Russia has stepped in to defend it. Maybe it would collapse if it wouldn't, but right now it's not in the cards. So uh,
0: so we have to deal with that mike were you gonna what i want to ask about the land bridge was is it possible because again we all keep assuming that after the syrian conflict that's when hezbollah and israel may go at it again mm. but what happens but that's assuming that hezbollah will come out of the syrian war whole right, right? if you well, you're talking before about the shia community generally and hezbollah generally what if they come out of it decimated yeah what if they come out of it, what if they lose that land bridge? the regional majority is the Sunnis, right? right? What if they come out of that conflict badly damaged, they lose the land bridge, and they lose a lot?
2: Well, I mean, look, so the point that Ruben said was, is well taken, that in that they have met, that's why their focus in 2013 was to preserve that stretch of land on the eastern Lebanese border from Homs down to, uh, essentially, to the Kunaitra. To I mean, that, that entire stretch of the Lebanese border. Um, they still haven't completely secured it, but more or less. I mean, there's still a war of attrition there. They're losing quite a few people whenever you hear Nusra. And incidentally, that's another. We said talked about the Golan, right? But what if American and Russian air forces all of a sudden start striking Nusra in the Qalamun on the eastern Lebanese border? That's a tremendous relief for Hezbollah. It will be actually Hezbollah's air force uh, because they will be able to help them secure that stretch of land, which is very important for them to keep the security of the Shia community in Lebanon. Because in 2013, like I said, stuff was blowing up in Beirut. Hezbollah's deal with the Shia community, if if I'm going to be grossly sort of oversimplified, is, is the following. Uh, we give you money, tremendous prosperity for the Shia, with the businessmen and the community, the community chest, as it were, is pumping with money. Uh, we give you... Uh, a sense of power in Lebanon, unrivaled. There's no, there's nobody that stands now in their way. They determine everything, despite of the, you know, the constitution says this and that. Doesn't matter. <laughs> there's no president. There's no parliament. There's no constitution. There's Hezbollah. Uh, two. In return, you give us your full allegiance and your sons and daughters. That's that's the, that's the deal. If you want to be cr- sort of very uh, uh, crass about it. So um, these guys are being thrown into Syria in the meat grinder in Syria. Now, you can argue the rate of attrition is the rate of attrition, um, you know, larger than, uh, bigger than what they are capable to resupply. You know, the, 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 these sons that are being thrown into the Hezbollah machine. Um, operationally, there, yes, I mean, look, there is. It, it has to be said, the people that they are losing in Syria are top people. Uh, veteran commanders, uh, people who belong to major families of the Shia uh, community in Lebanon, both in the Bekaa, the South, and in Beirut. Um, these people have operational experience that a new 18-year-old jumping in to be trained for a year and a half, so that affects also the rate of attrition. It takes a year and a half to train uh, a, uh, an elite Hezbollah fighter per Hezbollah standards um, so yeah it's a it's a big deal they are losing they are losing thing I don't know if they're going to lose the land bridge because they made it their priority and what the logic that Ruven just talked about um, well now the Russians have guaranteed that stretch right. and everybody's saying all right so that's it so now it continues there's another dynamic just very quickly. Because it's relevant to the dynamic of the war between Israel and Hezbollah and, the, and what might trigger it or how it might come up in the future. Notice that Israel, there hasn't been Israeli strikes in Lebanon, save for one. Oh, I mean, you can argue that there's an operation of the assassination of Hassan al-Lakis if it was Israel. That's one operation. And then the second, and they were back to back. It was, this was late 2013. And then in February 2014, there was one strike in Janta, in the Beqa, on the Lebanese side of the border, uh, to which Hezbollah retaliated in the Golan. So look at this interesting new dynamic. Israel doesn't fire in Lebanon. Israel fires in Syria, on the Syrian side. But Hezbollah now has a new outlet for retaliation and operation that's not from Lebanon, it's from the Golan. All right. So this is a new development in this case. And now, if you're Israel, now you can use this to your advantage as well as your. I mean, on the one hand, you've accepted Hezbollah's uh, terms that we're not striking you in Lebanon; we're going to strike you in Syria. At the same time, if you want to get Hezbollah into a conflict, then you strike him in Lebanon, right? But let's say this new stretch of land and this new reality consolidates whereby it's recognized that this is Russian territory uh, uh, in, a, in a settlement. We're not talking now, in the current conflict period. Okay, this, Syria stabilizes, and this becomes recognized as this is the Iranian-Russian sphere. What will be the, the Russian as well as international position on continued Israeli operations in that area, for instance? For now, the, Russian, the agreement with the Russians, whether it's actually an agreement or that the Israelis are just saying this is what we're going to do, you have to live with it, has continued Israeli strikes all along that eastern stretch of the Lebanese border on the Syrian side that I mentioned. Curiously, nothing north of that. So what you had seen in 2013, a strike in Latakia port against the consignment of yahunt anti-ship missiles, that's, you're not going to see that again. And, and you're not going to see an Israeli strike where the Russian air base is now and, and, and S-400s are. So There has been a de facto uh, constraint against Israel that nothing north of Homs on the northern stretch of the Lebanese border has been hit. Everything has been on the eastern side. So if there is a constraint, there is the potential that the Russians might say at some point, well, okay, now you can't do here either, for instance. And then the Israelis are going to, say, they're going to have to decide, what do we do? Do we strike in Lebanon? If we strike in Lebanon, then we risk another conflagration with, with Hezbollah. and So on. So there are various kind of scenarios where you can see this, these emerging uh, realities in Syria. Syria is really the linchpoint. That's why when people say we don't have an American interest in Syria, it's, it's absolutely insane. <laughs> we have Israel and we have Turkey and we have Jordan in Syria. These are vital American interests in Syria. Uh, and all of these things that are now rising in which we're either not doing anything or helping the Russians and the Iranians consolidate their interests, all of these various scenarios have their own dynamics that can very easily lead to a conflict. Let, let me ask Mike
0: quickly. Um, well, then we're going to put it up for questions in about uh, five minutes, something like that, maybe just for a few questions. Uh, but Mike and, and Tony, I want to make sure I'm... Uh, getting you right, I'm getting it clearly, you're saying that the Russians are, in effect, protecting or ensuring different parts uh, of Syria on behalf of the Iranians. Mike, what is the next administration? You said that they don't, they have not understood yet the complexity of the issue or how far they've been, the American position has been boxed in. When the next administration says, uh, OK, so here's the Russian position in Syria, what are we going to do about this? Because basically, they're protecting they're protecting Iranian arms shipments right here, Hezbollah. What does the next administration do about this? What what I mean, what is
3: available to it? Well, the the it's like I said before, you have to decide uh, the the administration whether it's a Trump administration or a Clinton administration. They have to decide: am I in an adversarial position with the Russians and the Iranians or not? I I take all the uh, everything that, that Riovin said. I I understand that as an Isra- why, why an Israeli would see it that way, and if I were an Israeli, I would see it that way as well. Uh, the United States has boxed the Israelis in. The U.S. policy has boxed the Israelis in and has given it no. Ch- the, the Israelis' policy has no choice but to find, but but to look after the interests of Israel by working with the Russians uh, to boxed try to come
0: in. How can you by,
3: elect- by 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 putting it by putting Israel out on the front line against the Russians. Right, up, putting them up with, without giving them any backing against uh, against the Russians and the Iranians. Right, so it's given them limited options. M- what I'm saying is that that's not that shouldn't be the U.S. policy. The U.S. should be looking to shape a regional order that is beneficial to it and all of its and all of its allies, including the Turks, including the Saudi, Saudis and, and so forth. That's our job. That's always that's been our job historically, and we have been remiss. In allowing other major actors who are inimic, uh, who are hostile to us, the Russians and the Iranians. Then that's, that's a a key assumption that I have that the Obama administration doesn't. I believe that the Russians and the Iranians are interested, their, their, their first goal in life is not, they don't wake up every morning and say, how do I, how do I make the Americans miserable today? But they want to change the balance of power against us, right? That is, that's what they're, that's what both of them are, are, are interested in doing. So it means, it, it means, Changing the balance, it means that we need to be in an adversarial relationship, but then we have to see our job as pushing back against the Russians and the Iranians across the board. I'm not convinced that either the the, the Trump team or the Clinton team has thought that through, because they're both sending conflicting signals on on, on this score. Donald Trump went before AIPAC and said he was going to roll up all of the Iranian terror networks around the world everywhere. At the same time, he said that the number one priority is ISIS. At the same time, he said he thinks Putin is somebody he can work with. Right? You can't roll up all the Iranian terror networks around the world and work with Putin. It doesn't work. So, and this, similarly, you know, Hillary Clinton is going to push back against Iran, but she she hasn't said a word about raising the defense budget. Right? The next president is going to have problems in the South China Sea, problems of ISIS and Iran, and other problems in the in the Middle East, the Ukraine. Uh, uh, and so on. You can't. There's a possibility that you'll have to deal with all of those simultaneously, or you're going to have to pick and choose very, uh, very carefully. So uh, uh, I think both both candidates, as far as I can see right now, are black boxes with regard to what they will actually do. It's very easy to make a campaign speech and say I'm not going to put up, I'm not going to tolerate this Russian and Iranian behavior anymore. But when you actually look at the choices that you that you that you have, there they are they are
0: stark van did you want to
1: well my sense uh, you know from talking my job as a diplomat is to talk with everybody so uh, talking with uh, people that are foreign policy advisors to both campaigns i don't have an impression that uh, they're going to I, I think that i have an impression that they, both of them want to engage with russia and not necessarily confront it when it comes to uh, the middle east um, because neither of them is going to be interested although on, i think on both uh, on both uh, sides uh, uh, people see differently, a bit differently, their approach, and maybe want to have a more resolute uh, approach. But uh, it's not the kind of approach that is going to take care of everything. Uh, so I think both of them are looking uh, for ways to reengage with the Russians uh, on Syria.
0: Um, I just want, before I move into questions, I just want to something I should have asked in the beginning, but I thought that that was kind of the premise of, of the of the panel. I just want to get a sense of like what Israeli um, what Israeli thinking is regarding strategic threats. My assumption is it's still Iran and the Iranian axis. Of course. Okay. Yeah. Of course. Is there, as, as you know, as Mike and Tony both speaking there is it's not the way it's perceived here, right? And so I don't, I don't think that Mike or that Tony said that the Israelis and the Americans are going to war in Syria. But I mean, but there is there. Is a, there is conflict in that way. I mean, the way that we perceive... Look, where, where you see is where you stand. When it comes to us,
1: of course, that for us, Iran is the, the most uh, formidable threat. Uh, first of all, because of their nuclear program and the fact that uh, 10, 15 years from now, they will be able to have, uh, as uh, Tony said, uh, an industrial size uh, program that would allow them to, um, to, to, to uh, you know, go for a nuclear weapon if they want. Uh, so the fact that for the next, uh, or the assumption for the next 10 years, they have an interest, and we think that they have an interest to fulfill the agreement, and we are for the fulfillment of the agreement, it doesn't change the fact that Iran still is most is the only force in the region that actually uh, presents an existential threat for Israel. And therefore, it, will, it was number one, it will remain number one. Uh, number two is Hezbollah because when it comes to military capability, adjacent to the, our borders, is the most formidable military force, and therefore those are the two premises that we have to continue uh, working with, taking into account that we are not going to shape uh, the political reality in Syria, and we will have to deal with whoever, uh, whoever, whichever force emanates from there as the as the ones that have were the resilient and were left there, but we are going to see that. Our interests are met in the in the sense of the red lines that we yeah. we have mentioned. We don't want the Iranian status to our border, nor Hezbollah.
2: We're going to uh, act in you know, order to prevent that. Yeah. Just two quick points and a follow-up on this. So one of the things that, that when the IDF published its strategy document for the first time and so on, um, um, they... And a lot of strategists in Israel as well said, you know, and everybody was looking at it as to what Israel considers its main. And it's funny, a lot of people seized on the fact that it doesn't mention Iran. And, and I said, oh, you see, even the Israelis don't see Iran. as But what's interesting in that is, what does it mention? It mentions Hezbollah as the principal threat facing, facing Israel. Now, of course, the Israelis know what Hezbollah is, and Hezbollah is Iran. And that, if you look at the last, and this is, um, uh, by the way, just a, a shameless plug. So we just yeah. put, we just put out a report at FDD that I co-authored with with my colleagues that Where? Is, uh, at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which is right here in Washington. <laughs> 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 uh, and we put out uh, we put out a, a report that discusses a lot of these a uh, lot of these issues and scenarios, and I invite you to to, to read it. But one of the things we discussed is, is this issue um, on of uh, wh- what has it, who has Israel fought. In the last what twenty years, the, every single war that Israel has fought has been with an Iranian proxy, and nobody else. Whether it's Hamas or whether it's Hezbollah, these are the wars that Israel has fought. Israel has been at war with the Iranian uh, alliance system for the last 20, 20 some years. Uh, you know, uh, so that's that is the that is the principal threat, and and to to to, to cloud that. Assessment is is to cloud your judgment and your policy options. One and on the second issue, um, oh great, now I now I'm drawing a blank. All uh, right, oh everyone, I'll come back to me later. Okay, that's fine. All right, good. So in the meantime, let's um, let's open it up to a couple
0: questions, and um, if anyone has any, and there's a um, there's a microphone going around, so if you'd hold on, if you would, um, uh, Halal, back there, if you would.
3: Hello, uh, Fratkin of the Hudson Institute. Uh, thanks very much. My my question is to Tony. Um, you spoke earlier on about the settlement towards which things might be moving. Um, and I was wondering if you could say what Syria looks like after that. Um, I mean, with a half a million dead, I mean, this nonsense about 250,000, millions of, of wounded um, what will Syria be at that point, and also, for that matter, what will Lebanon be, with a quarter of the population being right. Sunnis? I mean, what is, what's, what's going to be the condition of Syria with half a million Sunnis dead, more or less,
2: throw in a few Shia, right. and what, what will that be? Yeah. Uh- Look, I don't know if we're actually going to be moving towards a settlement, or even if, let's say, we do reach a settlement. Remember, the the, uh, the Lebanese Civil War had plenty of settlements. Uh, Settlements that lived anywhere from uh, a couple of days to a couple of years. Uh, And then you fall back into a pattern as regional and international and local conditions change. Um, I think... uh, we might be moving towards one of these scenarios if you know uh, now the idea of American military power with unfettered Russian military power uh, falling effectively on the side of the Assad regime is going to have uh, uh, results on the ground, right? He may very well be able to, let's say, take Aleppo and then you know he will have basically control of the major cities from Aleppo to Damascus. And, you know, we might have this kill zone in the eastern part of Syria, the Sunni, you know, desert region, where basically anybody and their friend can come and kill Sunnis, basically, uh, under the guise of the war on terror, okay? Um, The question, and this is relevant to the issue of the war between Israel and Hezbollah, is, who will be able to hold this ground? In, in, will Assad be able, after we've bombed the hell out of them and he captures, let's say, Aleppo and all of these, um, and we we stop and we pull back, unless the United States and Russia are willing to be perpetually at war with the Sunnis, and this is a very important consideration for future policymakers, that um these guys are going to have to face an, a, a problem, that who are who are the people who are going to hold these cities? Uh, is Hezbollah going to have to now become a permanent stationary force in Syria in order to help the regime against counter-renewed insurgency? Uh, is this, okay, they might get a year or two of, of peace, but what happens, let's say, when there's an opening and Turkey decides we're going to reopen the floodgates, we have a window here or we have a window there, and then everything moves in that direction. For now, I think we're going to see a situation which was what Lebanon was in the 1980s, effective uh, effective cantonization, basically, of where each power controls a particular space. We're effectively helping, like I said, in in the outcome, and some people have even published papers. People who used to be in the White House published papers advocating this as a, as a course whereby the Kurds will get their own uh, U.S.-protected canton in the north and Assad will get his own canton in the west and then you'll have, like I said, the skill zone in the middle. Um, I think we're looking at basically the consolidation now of, of, of areas for each of the parties. Uh, refugees are going to continue to flow as a result and nobody's going to return. Why? Because that's an essential component of Assad and Russia's policy. We're talking about this now with the bombing of hospitals and the bombing of uh, food uh, and water and blood banks and all of that, stuff like that. This is intended to either decimate a population or get it to be basically ethnically cleansed, to leave, to get out. Because if you have a shortage of manpower and an inability to hold terrain, you don't want hostile populations. If they're dead or they're gone, great, let Europe deal with it. And if they want to come to Putin for help, even better. Um, you know, I'll send more refugees and you can come and ask me for help. So that's what I think. Now, in, in Lebanon, you mentioned an interesting thing, and that's that could play a part in a scenario of a future conflict between Israel and Hezbollah. You do have 1.5 million refugees on top of several hundred thousand Palestinian refugees, a lot of whom... Uh, sympathize with uh, the the Syrian uh, revolution. Now, whether that changes, we'll see. But in a future war, uh, we can't discount that these guys may decide, hey, listen, uh, let's open up a new, f- let's take advantage of this war and open up uh, a front against Hezbollah, be it in Syria or in Lebanon. Uh, so you, sh- you start to see where the dynamics of a future Israel-Hezbollah war are very much intertwined with the dynamics of the war or stability in in Syria. It depends, you know. Even if there's a, a, a truce of some kind, if there's a war between Israel and Hezbollah, that may affect the the viability of a truce in Syria and, and vice versa.
0: Thanks, Mike. You want to say something? I mean, you know. Okay. It was a a question, um, the uh, the woman in orange, and then after that, we'll go to the person who is sitting next to her.
3: Hi, I, I didn't catch because I don't have the handout, but to the man from the Israeli embassy, you said that Israel wasn't going to get involved in Syria, and also that um, it was civilians that came over the border. About two years ago, I read a very disturbing article in the Jerusalem Post that al-Qaeda fighters came over the Syrian border and medically treated, so I'd like you to address that. And then to the man on the end, you said Iran is our, America's worst uh adversary in the middle east um the recent 9 11 report papers have cited that actually the saudi government helped and funded the terrorists that attacked no they did not we're we're not going to go into that we'll
0: we'll stop with your first question um, then if you would like to answer that yeah well our approach is
1: you know when you look at the we we took a very good look at the population sitting on the other side of the border since the beginning of the conflict um, because we saw that the population there has vested interests. And actually, what we found out is that usually they would go, into, they, they would go and follow. They were adversary of the regime, basically, many of them. It depends on the, on the, uh, which village you're talking about. And that they would affiliate themselves with, uh, with different organizations that they seem that would help them in protecting themselves. Now, what Israel does is we don't ask people that are coming injured to the border and, and you have to understand this, how how it works. Uh, there is a bombshell of the regime, for example, and then a mother comes with two children in her arms, and they come to the board to seek help uh, instead of going to Damascus. Okay? So you have women, children, you have men. We don't ask them which affiliation they are to the extent that, for example, I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote that one of the one of the men that were treated in uh, Ziv Hospital in in, in Sfat, uh after he you know, after we finished treating him, he said to the doctor, you know, I'll be back. You know, he wasn't very... He was a person that was basically hostile to Israel, but he decided to come to save his life. So it's not that we're we're expecting to have an alliance with organizations on the other side. That's not our business. That's not what we're doing. We're we're working with villagers, um, and we are not asking for uh, being... Aligned with Israel or belonging to a certain militia or to another militia, so one of them one day can call themselves this organization, the other the, the other day they will call themselves another organization. Now there are there are elements like the elements that Tony was t- talking about, Shuadal Yarmouk, okay, that are on the southern side of the of the of the Golan Heights. These guys are not coming to us for help, okay. So we are helping those who are seeking humanitarian help. We are not, we don't ask
2: questions. Just quickly, just a quick point. Uh, we talk about Al Qaeda, meaning the Nusra Front, right in in Syria, as though they they came down from Mars, you know, in the Al Qaeda hovercraft and then landed on. These people are. Uh, From those villages and the tribes and families of those villages. Some of them were with the FSA. Maybe their brothers are with the Free Syrian Army. Their cousin is with their Free Syrian Army. They may have been with the Free Syrian Army and then decided to move to another one. And maybe they'll move again. And maybe they'll move again. Exactly. So the notion that you are going to start this kind of program with villagers and tribes and clans... Even logistically is is is, is, uh, is not feasible. But also, I mean, you're dealing with people who are who these they live there. They're, these are this is where they're they're from. That's-
0: what, what I want to say is that um, I mean, it will be interesting as the war moves to different phases and when it ends to see um, to see if that did actually change the fact that uh, Israel was providing humanitarian aid. If it did change some minds, and I know some people who do think differently. Some Syrians, uh, you know, a, a, a guy I met in, in Turkey whose ideas are very different. And so that it'll we'll, we'll, be interesting to see how that how that affects things. Um, David, if you could pass the microphone on to David, if you would identify yourself for the, the rest of the audience who does not know you. Uh, you I'm from the uh, Foundation for Defense of Democracies. I know Mike hasn't heard of it, but uh, yeah. we're, all, we're all over the place. Um, so my my question was addressing a point made by Tony uh, regarding the Southern Front, uh, and this is a point you've addressed in many of your pieces that. Um, It won't be the Assad regime returning. Um,
2: Would a potential um, duplicate of the South Lebanon security zone on that border uh, be something that could prevent Iran from coming to
0: the border with Israel? And what are the challenges to that? Is it a good idea? What could be done
2: this time that would, you know, set it aside from the failures that made the South Lebanon security zone fail? And I believe that this is a question for you. It's a question for
3: all of you.
1: There's one lesson that we have drawn, I think, for the last 20 years, when it comes to, to when it comes to uh, you know trying to create political order on the other side of the border, is that we are not very good at it. Okay, so there's you don't see a lot of appetite either <coughs> from the political uh, echelons or from military echelons, security echelons from the, of the Israeli establishment to try and start engineering politics on the other side of the border. It always backlashes. Uh, and by the way, the same goes to peace. In the past, we were very concentrated in, you know, rising flags and making things very public. And now we understand that most of the most of the best cooperation we can do with our neighbors is, uh, you know, under the mm-hmm. under the radar. So, um, so uh, we don't have, you know, we have to be realistic about expectations, um, and and we have become much more sober in that uh, respect.
2: But I mean, you can you can you you can have. The, the limited political uh, goals that you mentioned, but th- but there is still a security uh, element, right? So there's a security element that, of direct Israeli intervention, which is what we have seen, uh, to prevent these. But uh, this is why the idea that somehow the Israelis don't have a preference. I don't know if I, if I buy that, right? There is a preference. We don't want the IRGC <laughs> on the go-on, right? So we would much prefer the local population that is hostile to these IRGC uh, and Hezbollah elements to continue to be there now whether that actually formalizes into a buffer zone or security zone I don't I don't see it right now I don't believe it's it's necessarily imminent or anything but uh, but in terms of a preference to help direct Israeli interventions to secure the Golan of course that's preferable to, than to have the uh, you know, to have the Iranians come down there and set up Shah. Um, we're going to leave it there. Um, and I want to thank
0: you all for coming, and I want to thank Ruvan Tony Badran, and Michael Duran, our panelists. Good morning.